Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a music history podcast where we're telling the whole story of American music. There is nothing that gets bit. left out. Not a single thing. Nothing. You know all the things. Still trying to. Like, I don't really. I feel like our intro needs to be something different, but oh, I don't know what. So I don't wreck, really care. But that sets the tone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care that much about it. I just want to get through it. So I'm not writing one. I don't care. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, this is a music history podcast. That's all you need to know. And but first, before we talk about that, uh-huh. last week, I guess it'll be two weeks ago when they hear this. I was on an episode of the What's Your Spaghetti Policy podcast. Yeah. So you guys should go check that out. I was on it too, but only because <laughs> I'm so glad that you can hear me from across the room. <laughs> So that podcast is just like my friend Jacob and then his buddy Alex and they just kind of like hang out and talk about whatever they want. So I joined them to talk about stuff and it was fun. We there had a good time. There was weird stuff that you guys talked about. Like fun. very off the wall. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of their show. Very fans. It was fun. So go listen to that and then let them know we sent you. All dozen of you. <laughs> don't need no bigger fan group (laughs) (laughs) all right well mika is the host now mika is the host now mika is still very full from lunch which was approximately five hours ago (laughs) where i stuffed my face so full with your lap i was getting to (laughs) that spoiler alert I ate a lot of kava, and kava is basically Mediterranean chipotle. And so I had my big bowl, and it was awesome, but it was so heavy that I dropped it all over my lap, and I was very sad, and I felt like a baby, and yeah, just wanted to share my failure. (laughs) There's not a lot of plugs in there, and that's just a sad story. The plug is kava is delicious, and the bowls are so full that... I can't hold it with one hand, and I just drop it. That's the plug. Go eat right. kava. <laughs> if you have a kava where you live. And if you don't, try not to drop your Chipotle bowls on yourself. Okay. So is Mika no longer the host now? Oh, there was something else. I... Can I share my favorite TikToks to the Twitter account? Yeah, I guess. I just want the whole world to see them, and I, I just, I just love them is so much. The cat hair one is that the I one? I love that <laughs> is one. Is that the one you're thinking of no, specifically? No, I'm thinking specifically of the chinchilla that doesn't like ah. playing soccer. Okay, that one is my new favorite thing. <laughs> but also Celine Dion Kitty. I think, I think her, I think the TikTok account is Feline Dion. <laughs> I guess it's it's feline yeah. Dion at that point. Whatever. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I guess expect to see a lot of animal-based TikToks on our only, Twitter feed now. Only the creme de la creme. So I f- won't go crazy. But follow us at twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore. That way I can actually yeah, That um, way you can contribute. see the, the TikToks that Mika's going to post. They're great. Top tier. <laughs> They're fantastic. All right, is the Mika corn one. The corn one. The corn one when they were washing the corn's hair. Oh yeah, that oh, one was so not good. good. No, it was great. That one was stupid. It was so good. 
All right. Minka no longer the host now? I guess. Okay. Now we talk about music history. You want to talk about more of my favorite dumb TikToks? No. Now we get to make some dumb stuff. Dumb. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? (laughs) Leave me alone. I'm in such a weird mood. (laughs) I'm 10 mLs of blood less today. That's true. That's like... That's like all of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all you had. Your body doesn't keep making more. My body does. That's what the blood said, is that it does make more blood. <laughs> I was really happy That's the to only see reason that. they took it, just to see if it would replenish. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, music history time. You don't want to talk about <laughs> my blood? <laughs> no, we're good. I like my blood. Do you remember what we talked about last week? No. <laughs> Did we do one last week? Yes. It was a part two of a topic. Blues. Yeah. We because talk- it's so close to jazz. Because it's close to rock and roll. <laughs> yes, we're getting close to rock. We talked about specifically like Chicago blues and then a little bit about Howlin' Wolf and T-Bone Walker. Yeah, no one has a normal name. No. That's that's what we talked about last week. So what do you remember about it? Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Okay. <laughs> well, we're today. <laughs> I'm not going to recap it. If people want to remember what we talked about, they can just go listen to that episode. Well, what about it was me? a good one. Well, you're not going to remember Am anyway, apparently. Lost? In this episode, am I probably? Be lost? But you're always lost, so it's okay. Oh, that's fair. Today we're talking about one of the biggest names in Chicago blues and just basically kind of blues in general, Muddy Waters. Have you ever heard of Muddy Waters? Only because you talk about him. Okay. I was about to say I remembered what we talked about, but I was remembering the Temptations. <laughs> yeah, it was a couple episodes ago. It's still not far off. That's all right. We were talking about Chicago. I don't know. Well, they were from Detroit, but okay. That's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sophia. <laughs> All right. So, McKinley Morganfield was born on April 4th, 1915 in the Mississippi Delta. Hey, who are we talking about? Muddy Waters. What's his name? McKinley Morganfield. I can't decide which one's a better name. <laughs> well, he was born in 1915 in the Mississippi Delta. Which is a swamp. Sort of. It's the most southern part of the world in terms of people and not geography. As we discovered last week. He was born into poverty on a plantation. His mother passed away shortly after his birth and he was raised primarily by his grandmother. They lived in a cabin, the remains of which are now in the Delta Blues Museum in Clarksdale, Mississippi. His father, Ollie Morganfield, was also a blues musician, but I don't really know what he did. These are great names. What, Ollie? Yeah. Ollie Morganfield. Yeah, that's a, that's a solid name. These these are just phenomenal names. <laughs> Ollie and McKinley. His first introduction to music came from church, like quite a lot of people his age probably. He said, quote, I used to belong to church. I was a good Baptist singing in the church. So I got all of my good moaning and trembling going on for me right out of church. At age 17. Um, uh, hold on. Okay. <laughs> We're going to dissect that a second. 
Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Continue. <laughs> At age 17, he bought his first guitar. This is him talking again. Quote, I sold the last horse that we had, made about $15 for him, gave my grandmother $7.50. I kept seven fifty and paid about two fifty for that guitar. It was a Stella. End quote. Cool. Yeah. Good little businessman selling a horse, getting a guitar. He was pretty good at guitar and first started out by playing the songs of Robert Johnson and Sun House. Do you remember those guys? Oh I remember Sun House. Sun House was the guy Robert Johnson wanted to be. Is he the one who made a deal with the devil? Yes, at the crossroads. Yeah. Yep, that's him. Okay. Very Halloween appropriate. Spoopy. So Muddy Waters played a lot of like smaller bars and joints near his house, mostly on the Stovall Plantation, which was where he worked as a sharecropper. I like how you you distinctly mentioned both bars and joints. Yeah. And I feel like those are pretty much the same thing. Well, it's like a, a... juke joint which i think is different but i don't really know how oh let's look it up i got a little laptop here juke joint oh i typed in juke agent (laughs) (laughs) juke joint is the vernacular term for an informal establishment featuring music dancing gambling and drinking primarily operated by african-americans in the southeastern united states might also be called a barrel house. Yeah, so kind of just a bar, but I guess it just depends on what you call it. And he played in either of them. He did not discriminate. I call this place a joint. (laughs) Listen, we dance, we sing, we drink. (laughs) All right, I mean, okay. It's not owned and operated by an African-American, unfortunately. That would be interesting. No, it's owned and operated by our kitty. That's true. Currently making my leg fall asleep. Good. Suffer. So on the weekends, when he wasn't at work as a sharecropper, he opened up his cabin as a juke joint for people to come listen to music and drink the moonshine that he made. That's cool. Yeah. Little businessman going on. In 1941, he was recorded for the first time. A famous musicologist named Alan Lomax came to the Delta region to record bluesmen for the Library of Congress. He went to Muddy Water's cabin and recorded two songs from him, paying him $20 for both of them. Lomax actually came to the region to record Robert Johnson, but Robert Johnson had actually died before Lomax even got there. It's just no one really knew much about him, so they didn't know how to find him. Later, Muddy said about those recordings, quote, And when he played back the first song, I sounded just like anybody's records. Man, you don't know how I felt that Saturday afternoon when I heard that voice, and it was my own voice. Later on, he sent me two copies of the pressing and a check for 20 bucks, and I carried that record up to the corner, and I put it on the jukebox. Just played it and played it and said, I can do it. I can do it. That is absolutely precious. (laughs) So that was the first time where he was like, I can actually be a professional musician. The next year, Lomax came back and recorded him again. Here is one of the first songs recorded during Lomax's first trip to the plantation. It's called I Bees Troubled. 
I feel in my like I feel today. I'm gonna pack my suitcase and make my gear. When I'm trouble, I'm alright. It does sound just like all the other things that I've listened to. <laughs> and I never be satisfied. Doesn't sound like you're saying that appreciatively. Yeah, I know my little rougher quality. He doesn't have a band or anything like that. He's in the studio. He's just in his plantation. All right, well, that was one of his first songs ever recorded. In 1943, Muddy joined the throngs of African Americans fleeing the racial discrimination of the South for one of the northern cities. Rumor is it. Rumor has it. Rumor is it. Rumor has it that he got into an argument with a plantation overseer and sort of ran away from town. But whatever actually happened, he wound up in Chicago. That's the important part. He later said that arriving in Chicago was the single most momentous moment in his life. He started to play in some of the blues clubs on the south and west side of the city while working as a delivery driver and in a paper mill during the day. He was a busy boy. When did he sleep? Never. That's you fair. gotta rock and roll all night and party every day. You don't get to sleep. Okay. A guy we talked about last week named Big Bill Brunzi was one of the biggest bluesmen in Chicago at that time, and he let Muddy open for a lot of his bar shows. Because of that, Muddy had the opportunity to play in front of the largest audiences in Chicago who were looking for blues at that time. So just kind of a cool little like serendipitous moment that he just got put with Big Bill Brunzi. Do you remember Big Bill? We listened to one of his songs. No. We didn't listen to him last week. Yeah. <laughs> the sound of the cheering crowds overwhelmed his acoustic guitar, so he bought his first electric guitar in 1944. Oh, buddy. He said, quote, When I went into the clubs, the first thing I wanted was an amplifier. Couldn't nobody hear you with an acoustic? End quote. It's kind of funny how, like, an electric guitar is so standard now for that kind of music, and it was he just started it because he was like, I want people to hear me, so like, I had to get an electric. Muddy fit the electric guitar really well. His slide style of playing mixed with his smooth voice in a very natural way. He became quite well known for his electric guitar playing. However, his blues sounded a bit different than the traditional style. With the addition of electric guitar, he also added a little pep to his music. Most people were all were still playing like very sad traditional blues type songs, but his songs reflected the optimism going around post-war African American communities at that time. So his music has a little bit more pep to it than the rest of the people playing in clubs. I can't wait to hear the pep. In 1946, Muddy Waters landed his first record contract with Aristocrat Records. Arist, Arist, yeah, Aristocrat, not Aristocat. Cat. I had I wrote Aristocat on here. But they didn't, those records didn't really go anywhere. This was the company that the Chess Brothers worked for and would eventually take over, turning it into Chess Records. Do you remember Chess Records? Cat's long cat. He knows <laughs> where it's at. You're just not even paying attention anymore. You're just singing. I do remember Chess Records. Okay. Because Poland is the blues. Remember that? That's how the Chess Brothers were so good at recognizing That's good blues. Right. That's right. <laughs> so at this point, it wasn't Chess Records. It was still Aristocrat, and they just didn't really know what to do with Muddy Waters. 
These recordings were done in the traditional style with a piano, clarinet, and a saxophone. After one of the recording sessions, Muddy asked if he could do one his way instead. So they ditched the piano and all of that stuff, and he grabbed his electric guitar and add some and added some of the big city energy into the song. So this is the first time he got to record something like the way he wanted to record it. In 1948, he scored his first hit with I Can't Be Satisfied, which was one of the recordings that he did his way during that session. I knew you were going to do that. Satisfied. (laughs) This single sold out in the first weekend, and it gave Muddy his first real taste of fame. I I, I think that you already mentioned this, and I already made the same joke. I think so. I think I played this last Because I recognize that riff. Yeah, this is I Can't Be Satisfied. Probably played it last week. Not a pep yet. He's building up to it. Well, I'm gonna wait till Won't be back no more. Going back down south, child. Don't you want I'm trouble? I be all Well, babe, I just can't be satisfied, and I just can't keep on. You like that one? So did a lot of people. It was very popular for him. Are you calling me basic? (laughs) No. I feel like if you like it at this time, it's not. (laughs) Around this time, Muddy Waters started working with guitarist Jimmy Rogers and harmonica player Little Walter. They became a trio and performed together, calling themselves the Headhunters, and they would wander the south side of Chicago sitting in on like random musician sessions. They would just like walk into a bar and just be like, yeah, we'll play with you. (laughs) That's awesome. They wouldn't record together until the 1950s, and by that time, Muddy Waters had earned more fame with more hit songs. In 1950, Muddy Waters released what would become his signature song. It is his interpretation of a song called Catfish Blues that had been a classic in the Delta Blues region. It was one of the first songs that Muddy learned to play and was always one of his favorites. It's called Rolling Stone. The Rolling Stones are named after this song, as is the magazine Rolling Stone, at least kind of partly. I thought they were named after the magazine was named after the band. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so, actually. I think it's partly after. I think it's mostly the song. But even if it is named after the band, the band's named after the song. So here's like a a Rolling Stone. That's an older money pitch. Well, I wish. I was a catfish swimming in a deep blue sea. I would have all you good looking women fishing, fishing after me, showing up after me, showing up after me. Oh, love. He looks very content. He just looks pleased with how things have gone. He should be. All right, well that's Rolling Stone. But do you want to watch a video of him playing it live? Uh, of course. I don't. I wrote this a long time ago, so I don't know what we're about to see here. Deep blue sea. I 
Then all the good-looking women fishing after him. I mean, I, I get it. I, I'd be fishing <laughs> after him. You call yourself a good-looking woman? No. Well, that's him playing. His baby is his wife. So he doesn't get Or his baby. <laughs> he doesn't have the kind of like stage antics that T-Bone Walker had, but, you know, he's still good. He's, he's okay. He's <laughs> Around this time, the Headhunters added Otis Spann on piano and Babyface on drums. No. <laughs> and they became essentially the first rock band. Muddy convinced the Chess Brothers to let him use this band during recordings instead of the house band that Chess always always used. So this band became arguably the most legendary blues band in history. In the early 1950s, the group recorded what would become several blues classics. Here's one of them called I'm Your Hoochie Coochie Man. I feel like I know this. Maybe. It's probably been covered by a like, wide variety of classic rock bands. The gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born I got a boy child coming He's gonna be a son of a gun He's gonna make pretty women's Jump and shout Then the world wanna know What this all about I got a mojo too. That's Hoochie Coochie Man with the Headhunters. So the Headhunters became a springboard for a lot of blues musicians. In 1952, Little Walter left to become a successful blues artist in his own right. In 1954, Jimmy Rogers left to focus on his own band that had taken a bit of a side status to Muddy Waters at that point. Other musicians who played with Muddy would go on to be blue stars as well. So it was kind of just like the little like the little stepping stone for a lot of popular blues artists. When Howlin' Wolf got to chess in 1954, they started a sort of rivalry. Willie Dixon was the house songwriter for Chess Records, so he collaborated with Muddy on a lot of songs. Because at this point Muddy was like Muddy was Chess Records, like he was their biggest star. So, of course, their, like, primary house writer is going to be primarily writing his songs. When Howlin' Wolf got there, he started to think that Muddy got all of the best songs. So, really, the rivalry centered around who got to use Willie Dixon the most. And they sounded similar, so there was always kind of, like, going to be a natural rivalry for the audience's attention in that. Do you remember Howlin'? Remember Howlin' Wolf? I thought he brought his own songwriter. No. No. Not necessarily. No, I don't remember him. 
We talked about him at the end of the last episode. His stage presence was charismatic, mysterious, and a little sexual. Basically, the template for the rock band frontman that came after him. Except they just kind of like expounded on it. For most of the early and mid-50s, Muddy toured the United States pretty heavily. But when Chuck Berry started releasing music and the rock and roll craze began to blossom, the blues sound wasn't quite as popular as it had been. By the late 50s, the national tours grew scarce, and he started to stick to Chicago. In 1958, Muddy Waters had the chance to tour the UK, which had an explosive impact on the world of music. The British audience wasn't really prepared for what they got. Yeah, they they need they need excitement. <laughs> At the time, the English audiences only really knew the folk blues acoustic style, which Muddy wasn't that at all. He said, quote, They thought I was a big Bill Brunzi, but I wasn't. I had my amplifier and span, which is his musician, and I was going to do a Chicago thing. We opened up in Leeds, England. I was definitely too loud for them. The next morning, we were in the headlines of the paper, screaming guitar and howling piano, end quote. One it's just too much excitement. <laughs> yeah, it's just too much. It's just too much. One critic said that every time Muddy touched a knob on his guitar, the music got louder and forced him back, eventually forcing him out of the venue. Just the sound waves, <laughs> like, buffering <Yeah>. it back. <laughs> boosh, boosh. Some of the British audience hated Muddy. Those that left and hated it were now considered old school. The ones who stayed were the kids who wanted electric guitars of their own after this. For this tour, Muddy played with members of Chris Barber's more traditional jazz band. But Muddy's performances inspired several of that band to start playing electric instruments. Two members, named Corner and Davies, formed their own bands. And Is it called Corner and Davies? <laughs> no, I think it was two separate bands. And members of those two bands went on to form like major rock groups like Cream and the Rolling Stones and Fleetwood Mac. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Like Corner and Davies didn't form any, any of those, but members of their bands did. These performances and other ones he did in 1960 inspired the likes of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Van Morrison, Jimmy Page, who was a founding member of Led Zeppelin, and Eric Clapton. Basically, he was the impetus for the, for the British invasion of the mid-60s. Throughout the rest of the 60s, he continued to influence and inspire musicians, introducing countless people to Chicago blues and the electric blues sound. He played at the Newport Jazz Festival to a primarily white audience, and the budding hippie generation fell in love with him. In the 60s, Chess Records tried to keep broadening his audience. Some of the songs were successful, but the overall album concepts weren't. They tried to pair Muddy with brass bands and psychedelic music, which didn't really yeah, go over all that well. doesn't sound like that would work. No. The result of that experiment was an album called Electric Mud and was eventually disowned by Muddy himself. He said it was the worst thing he's ever done. Wow. Here's one of the songs from that record called yes. I Just Want to Make You Love Me. I'm so excited. Mm. Show me the trash. Not be trash, it's just not his sound, so he probably hated it. Mm. Mm. I don't want you to 
psychedelic music it's not terrible a lot of people really like that album but he is not one of them in the 70s and 80s he continued to record and perform returning to his roots in his chicago blues style of playing but by this point he was kind of like a legend because all of these popular rock bands cited him as influence so he was like he could do whatever he wanted at this point and people were going to come see him he stayed with chess records until it was sold his status as a music legend was cemented during this time, mostly because people like Mick Jagger and Eric Clapton sung his praises and performed with him whenever they could. That's so cool. In 1982, his health started to decline, which hampered his performance. His final performance was with Eric Clapton's band in Florida. In 1983, Muddy Waters passed away from heart failure related to cancer in his sleep in Illinois. He was 70 years old. His death shook the music world, and throngs of people attended his funeral. Muddy Waters was incredibly influential to the world's music scene. He brought electric blues to the UK, which primarily instigated the British invasion. He helped to shape the birth of rock and roll. In a lot of ways, he was the frontman of the first rock band. His records were covered by and inspired the biggest names in music for the next few decades. A lot of the members of his band went on to be successful blues musicians on their own, and his guitar playing inspired thousands. B.B. King, who is one of the best blues musicians of all time, said, quote, It's going to be years and years before most people realize how greatly he contributed to American music. That's Muddy Waters. That's now. <laughs> I mean, some people know, but like the average that's person cool. on the street probably has no idea who Muddy Waters even is. Probably not, no. And he's the reason for a lot of the music they listen to. That's really cool. Without Muddy, we might not have Post Malone. Might not have a lot of these like more modern rocker type personas. That's wild. <laughs> All right, well, that's Muddy. Cool. I like him. Next week, we talk about R&B. Woo! We get into that genre, which was it's a hard one because it's like Rhythm and blues is not really a genre. It's more of a catch-all term for a lot of different types of music. Mm. But we talk about a few different things in it. Cool. And then we're inching our way towards rock. I like yeah. rock. Anything to say before we sign off of here? Catch our Twitter for some fire TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Goodbye. The gypsy woman told my mother... Before I was born, I got a born charge coming. He's gonna be a son of a gun. He's gonna make pretty women's jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about.